Well, our sermon passage today is Psalm 49. So if you have a Bible there, if you want to turn to Psalm 49, that'll be our text this morning. And as is our custom here, we invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy word today. Give ear to the reading of God's word. Psalm 49, to the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Hear this, all peoples, give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor, together. My mouth shall speak wisdom, the meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb, I will solve the riddle to the music of the lyre. Why should I fear in times of trouble, when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me? those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever Their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names, man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them, people approve of their boasts. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases, for when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask God's blessing to us uh, on his word today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its perfection, that it is every word of it is breathed out by you, and it's given for us to to equip us for every good work, that, that by it you, you sometimes rebuke us, you instruct us, you correct us, and you train us up in righteousness, and especially by it you reveal the way to know you and to know salvation through faith in Christ. We thank you for all these things. We ask that you would once again work in us by your spirit, give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, there are, as you probably know, if you've read through the Psalms a number of times, uh, there are any number of what we call, you know, people call genres or types of Psalms. And this is a little bit different one. We haven't seen many of this kind so far in our study through the Psalms. This is what's known as a wisdom Psalm. That's probably not very surprising. If I were to have read that passage and not told you what text I was reading, if I didn't tell you Psalm 49, if I were to, I wouldn't, wouldn't fib in the pulpit, but if I were to say, this is from Proverbs and just pick the chapter, there's a good chance you might have not caught it. That you might have said, yeah, it sounds, unless you knew Psalm 49, you, you might say, yeah, it sounds like the Proverbs. This, this, this Psalm sounds a lot like the Proverbs. And the psalmist even calls us to, to give ear to his words, doesn't he? He says, in verse 3, that his mouth will speak 
wisdom. Uh, Matthew Henry, uh, the great Bible commentator, writes of this psalm. Uh, he says, this psalm is a sermon. This psalm is a sermon. And so is the next. In most of the psalms, we have the penman praying or praising. In these, this one in Psalm 50, in these, we have him preaching. And it is our duty in singing the psalms to teach and admonish ourselves and one another. So this psalm is a, is a sermon, and I believe, I believe he's right. If you think about it, many psalms address God directly. In praise, we, we, we usually use ones like that for our call to worship. Uh, many, many of the psalms uh, also address God in prayer. Those two things are sometimes a lot of overlap between uh, prayer and praise. Um, but in this particular psalm, the psalmist addresses the reader or the person singing the psalm. In other words, here the psalmist kind of stops and addresses you directly. He's addressing this one to you. Listen to verses 1 through 4 again. He says, Hear, hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor, together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb or a, or a problem. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. So it's a, it's a sermon, even though it's in a, it's in a song. It's in a psalm, even though it's even uh, written to the choir master, right? It, it's supposed to be sung, but it's a song that we are to take as a sermon and one preached to us where to take to heart. Notice this wisdom psalm is for everyone. There's no one, there's no one to whom this psalm should not be addressed. He says it's for all peoples and all inhabitants of the world. Verse 1. The psalm has something to say to everyone, no matter what station of life you may be in, no matter what your life might be like. It says both low and high, rich and poor together. There isn't a person in this, in this world that doesn't need to take the message of Psalm 49 to heart. No one is exempt from its message. There's no one on earth to whom this message does not apply. And why is that? Why is this? I mean, all of Scripture applies to everyone in some way. But what is it about this psalm that makes it so applicable to everyone? In all places, it's because this psalm deals with matters of life and death. Literally, life and death. We sometimes exaggerate and speak of certain things when they're really important to us, that they're life and death matters. But this really is life and death, to say the least. Well, the first thing we're going to see in the psalm and it's really all through the psalm, uh, Psalm 49, is the vanity of riches. The vanity of riches or wealth. Verses 5 to 6, the psalmist kind of tells us, you know, what's, what's the problem that he's dealing with? What is the thing that's vexing him that he wants us to turn our attention to? He says in verse 5 to 6, Why should I fear in times of trouble? Why should I fear in times of trouble? When the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their, of their riches. So this is kind of one of those, it's a common theme in scripture, the temptation to fear the wicked, the temptation to fear even the, uh, the prosperity of the wicked. This isn't the only psalm that deals with that. You might be familiar with Psalm 73, maybe the most familiar psalm when it comes to that topic about the, the prosperity of the wicked. That can be a vexing thing for the godly, for the believer to deal with. You, you, know, you serve the Lord. Sometimes God's people serve him all their days and seem to have nothing in this life to show for it. Although God certainly blesses, uh, very much blesses our, our obedience to his will and serving him in the name of Christ. 
Very often it's the ones who, who seem to have no care at all, no thought to the Lord, who do so well in this life. And a lot of times they gain that prosperity, as this, this psalm paints a picture of someone gaining their prosperity through wickedness. He talks about those who, who cheat him or defraud him uh, there in verse in verse 6, those who, the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me. He, he felt like the wicked, the, the, the prosperous wicked were around him on every side. They had him surrounded. It's like there was nowhere he could go, nowhere he could turn where he wasn't faced with that vexing problem. Now this, I have to be clear, this is not a Marxist psalm. This is not a psalm that uh, it offers us excuse to resent other people or envy them for their prosperity or their wealth. It is not a psalm against wealth. It is not a psalm railing against private property. It's nothing of the kind. He's not saying rich people are bad, poor people like me are good. Besides, if we were, we would all put ourselves in the poor category. There's always somebody that has more than us. And if you want to define rich people, how do you define it? Someone who has more than me, no matter how much you may, you may have. The concern in this psalm primarily is justice and the desire for protection against his, the psalmist's enemies and ours. Now, the wicked in this psalm are described in a very, uh, I think, a very clear but very troubling way. In verse 6, he says, it's those who, what does he say they do? Those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches. Those are the wicked that the psalmist is, has his eyes on at the moment. Now, when he says to boast, it's the same root word that we get the word, the, the word praise from. The word hallelujah comes from the same root as this word that's translated boast. So put it in that context and think about what he's saying about these people. They trust in their wealth. They praise their, the abundance of their riches. No. What do those two things rightly belong to? Trust and praise. The Lord Jesus Christ, God himself, not material things. And yet the wicked, rather than trusting in God, trust in their own wealth, no matter how they may have gotten it. Rather than praising God and, and boasting in him, they praise what? The abundance of their riches. This shows, I think, the truth and wisdom of the Lord Jesus Christ's words in Luke 16, 13, very familiar to most of you, where he says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then what does he say? You cannot serve God and money, or mammon. You cannot serve God and money. The person who trusts in their wealth person who trusts in their money is serving money rather than God. The person who boasts of or praises the abundance that they have of worldly possessions is serving money rather than God. Their heart is set on their possessions rather than on the one true and living God. In other words, for such people that the psalmist describes here in verse 5, who or what is their God? Their God is essentially their money, their possessions, their riches, the things that they have acquired. That's why in Colossians 3 verse 5, the Apostle Paul says that's, uh, there that covetousness or greed, if you have the NIV, covetousness is what? He says it is idolatry. He calls covetousness or greed idolatry. Now think about that for a minute. Now we just read, Dan just read the Ten Commandments to us again. We read that usually every first Sunday of the month. 
And I think that's with good reason. It's a good practice for us to keep the Ten Commandments in our minds, to think about them, to not, not, not lose sight of them. But think about covetousness being idolatry. If you know your Ten Commandments, if you remember what you read, it's a violation of the first and the tenth of the Ten Commandments. What's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. Now, before me doesn't mean uh, there's a ranking, a pecking order. And God has to be first. You can have other gods, but God's first. That's not what it says. Before me means basically in front of my face. Don't, don't have another God in front of me. I don't want to see anything like that, is what God is saying. He sees everything. We should be reminded that God sees all. When you read the first commandment, no other gods before me, that God sees all. Well, the covetous person, the greedy person, may not bow down to statues. He may not be religious at all in his own thinking, but he has a God, even if he doesn't know it, and that God is his possessions. It's a violation of the first commandment. It's an act of wickedness before God. And then what also, when he says covetousness is idolatry, that's the tenth commandment, not to covet anything, if I can sum up that whole long commandment, not to covet anything that belongs to your, to your neighbor. That is evil in the sight of God. So there's overlap between the commandments. Not only that, but covetousness, not only is it idolatry, but it also leads to breaking other commandments, doesn't it? Even the psalmist mentions those who cheat him or defraud him. So it's theft and all kinds of things come from then. So I have to ask, this psalm actually asks you this morning. I almost don't have to say it at all. But are you serving money rather than God? Are you serving money rather than God? Is your heart set on the things of this world rather than on the Lord? Matthew 6, verses 19 to 21, Jesus Christ himself says this. You'll notice Jesus has a lot to say about our possessions, doesn't he? He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal and then he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So are you trusting in God or are you trusting in your possessions? What or whom do you love and praise? Where is the treasure and where is your, where is your heart? Now, not only are riches a false god, right? It's idolatry. But riches, worldly possessions are also an untrustworthy god. That rich man in, in this psalm that the psalmist talks about is doing a foolish thing. He's putting his trust in something that's not worthy of that trust. He's trusting in his worldly wealth, his possessions, to do things they cannot do. Look at verses 7 through 9. The psalmist here tells us that riches, our possessions, can never deliver a man from death. Verses 7 and 9, he says this, Truly no man can ransom another. Or give to God the price of his life. Why? For the ransom of their life is costly or precious and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. This is saying at least a couple things. All the money in the world can't fend off death at its appointed time. Now the scriptures say that it's appointed unto men to die and, and then to die first and then the judgment. That's the lot of every human being that's ever walked this earth. A king's ransom is not enough to save a man's soul or to put off death one day past his appointed time. 
That's why earthly riches, there's nothing wrong with them in and of themselves, but they are not worthy of your trust. They are not worthy of your praise. They are vain and un unworthy of your trust. The ransom price, he says there, of a man's life is costly. It's costly. The cost of a man's redemption, how costly is it? It's infinite. It's infinite. Why is the cost of a man's life, of a man's soul, infinite? Why is the cost of, of, of a man's redemption and ransom infinite? It's because our debt of sin is infinite. Every sin we commit is against an infinitely holy God. One sin is an infinite debt that we cannot repay. You might come, call to mind that, that parable of, of the unjust servant. Remember, he had this debt. Uh, we can't even comprehend the total of this debt this man had. It might as well have been infinite. You know, you'd throw, throw numbers around. The numbers are so large, you, you, it almost mean nothing to us. He, he had a debt of, we, they called a certain amount of talents. It's like billions of dollars. A, a man couldn't possibly pay it. No man could pay it. And what does the king do? The king forgives him his debt. He could have sold his family into slavery, could have done all these things, that he forgave the debt, and then that man went out and choked his fellow servant, who owed him a little bit, to give me what you owe. And what happened? The king threw that man into prison until he wouldn't get out until he paid the last penny. But that, 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 that parable tells us something about our debt. Every one of us, our debt of sin, that if you're a Christian, that Christ has paid, was an infinite debt that we can't even comprehend. How great a debt that it is. That's why riches are so vain. Why our possessions have no, no power to redeem or ransom a man. They're, they're, it's infinite. When he says there, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly. And then it says, and can never suffice. You could pay for the rest of your life. If you had, if you had infinite wealth, infinite things, and you could pay for the rest of your life... It wouldn't even touch your debt of sin. And that brings us to the next thing that's all throughout the psalm as well. And that's not just the, the vanity of riches, uh, but it's the certainty of death. Now, that's a topic we don't like to think about, most of us. We like to, to put that kind of a thought off. You know, the scripture tells us, it says, uh, Lord, you know, teach us to number our days. Why? That we might gain a heart of wisdom. And so... Very often the scripture brings this topic up and it's to our benefit that we're reminded of it as much as we don't like to think about it at times. The psalmist in this psalm goes to great lengths to impress upon us the certainty of death. Notice that in this psalm, as in other parts of scripture, that death is no respecter of persons. Death don't care how much money you make. Death doesn't care if you're a king or someone living on the street. It doesn't matter at all. All alike perish. In verses 10 to 12 it says, For he sees that even the wise die. Nothing wrong with being wise, but even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must, must perish. Now, you know, you're not supposed to say the word stupid, right? But the word stupid, it, it, it's really the idea of somebody being uncivilized. You could translate that, uh, as the New Testament also does elsewhere, as barbarian. Now, we think of something different. We think of barbarians, probably Conan or some large man with a weapon. Uh, it's just uncivilized. That's all, that's all it's referring to. The fool and the stupid alike must perish and do what? Leave their wealth to others. Leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever. They may have the biggest house you've ever seen in your life. 
with multiple gates, a thousand televisions, a bowling alley in the basement and whatever. And what does it say? Their graves are their homes forever. Their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. It doesn't get much bigger than that. People have actually done that throughout history. Some of the names of towns and lands and regions that you know of, that you see on your map now, come from someone's name or derived from someone's name. They, they think they can gain posterity by naming a whole swath of land after themselves, but it's ironic because what, what's their home? The dirt, their grave. Though they called lands by their own names, and they says, man in his pomp will not remain he is like the beasts that perish. Pomp, it's, it's kind of you know, glory or, or, or honor. The, having a big name. It says, man in his pomp will not remain. He's like the beasts that perish. Even kings die like dogs. They die like sheep. They die like cattle. There's no glory in their death. Rich and poor both die. The wise, the fool, the uncivilized barbarian alike, he says, must perish and leave their wealth to others. You know, what's the old saying? You can't take it with you. You don't usually see a, a U-Haul trailing behind a hearse. It doesn't work that way. Job, Job you, you know this verse. Even if you've never read Job, you've probably heard this before. Job 121, it says, Job says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. And then what does he say? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Riches, wealth are not evil things. Job was a wealthy man, but Job did not trust in his riches. Job's praise was not for his riches. And how, did he, how do we know that? Because when God decided to take them away, what did he say? You know, basically, easy come, easy go. God gives, God takes away, and whichever thing God chooses to do, blessed be the name of the Lord. God is still good. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus told a crowd, he said, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. There's that word again. Why? For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he gave a parable to illustrate the point. He says in verses 16 to 21, And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? Uh, for I, I have nowhere to store my crops. I mean, he just hit the lottery. He's, if you can you know, kind of picture a lottery as somebody for a farmer. But what a lottery would be for a farmer is he's got so much crops he doesn't know what to do with them all, literally. He doesn't have a place to put them. And instead of praising God, what does he do? He says, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul... Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. He basically just hit his retirement account. He just finally can relax. He can retire. He's got so, many, so much grain, so much goods, that he has to build new places to store them. And now he can relax. And it says, but God said to him, Fool, or you fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Notice, what does he, what does he refer to himself as? When he, when, he, when he talks to himself, soul. Soul, you have ample goods. And then what does God say? God says to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. The man knew he had a soul, but acted like he didn't. He knew he had a soul, and he acted like the only thing that mattered was his worldly 
goods. How many of people in this world does that describe even now? They might not be rich. They might not have to build new, new places to, to hold all their treasures. But how many know they have souls and act as if they don't? And all they care about is the, the things of this world. Whether they have them or not isn't even the point. They set their hearts on them. That's, that's the point. And yet they're anything but rich toward God. So earth, earthly prosperity, the psalmist says here and elsewhere, earthly prosperity is no sign, it is no guarantee of God's blessing. That's really what's, what's going on here. You know, the man, it says later in the psalm that this, such a man considers himself blessed. Verse 18, though while he lives, he counts himself blessed. Why do you think he counts himself blessed? Because he has so much stuff. Even though he knows he got it through unjust means. Cheating and, and, and defrauding others. Even people like the psalmist, he, he defrauded apparently. Earthly prosperity is no sign. It is no guarantee of God's blessing. And the opposite is also true. Poverty is not a sign of its absence. Poverty is not a sign of God's blessing not being there. Prosperity can lead to sinful presumption that all must be well with your soul. Must be doing something right, we often say, when things are going well. Must be living right. God must, God must be happy with me. It leads to a false sense of security. When in reality, at any moment, God might tell that person the words that Christ just said, this night your soul is required of you and then your riches are passed on to someone else. Twice in the psalm, it, it repeats a refrain almost word for word. It says that, that man in his pomp will not remain, but will perish like the beasts, just like an animal on the street. Now, it's been said, and I've heard it said, and I, the more I serve as a pastor, the more I believe it to be true. It's been said that a pastor's job, a preacher's job, uh, in, in, in some ways consists primarily of preparing his people for death. That's a morbid way to look at pastoral ministry, and it's not the only thing you could say, thankfully. But I think that's true. What does that mean? Your job as a pastor, as an elder, is to make sure that those who are entrusted to your care are ready to meet the Lord. And to borrow the words from one of the, one of the uh, Puritans, that, that you can, in this life, sleep as comfortably on your deathbed as you do on your couch without a care in the world. I would ask... On the side, do we measure a minister or a church that way these days? That even on a radar screen anywhere when you think of, of the ministry to the Lord's people. Many churches, I believe, spend more time entertaining people, which, you know, amusement, uh, another pastor once told me, once didn't tell me personally, but I heard him say it in a sermon, that amusement, if you break the word down, uh, the word amusement comes from the word, it means to not think. We spend time amusing people in church we're doing them far from a, from a service we're doing something terribly wrong uh, for them and so I asked this morning as we, we should always think about this are you prepared to meet the Lord you can be prepared to meet the Lord you can live in such a way as to know no matter what happens it is well with your soul you can, you can live in such a way if you know the Lord that you can sleep as comfortably on your deathbed as you do taking a nap on your couch on a summer's day and that brings us to the third, the third point of, uh, from the text this morning. And that's the ransom of sinners or the, the costliness of our redemption. The psalmist just showed us the vanity of wealth, the vanity of riches. He showed us the vanity of riches in light 
in particular of the certainty of death. It's the certainty of death that makes riches vain, isn't it? One of the things. So now he points us to the ransom for sinners in verses 13 to 15. He says something marvelous here. He says, this is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them, people approve of their boasts. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Sheol is the place of death, the grave. Uh, even, you can even extrapolate that out to being, to being hell. He says, like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. And then look at verse 15. But God, but God will ransom my soul from the power of of Sheol, for he will receive me. What a remarkable thing for the psalmist to be able to say. When he thought about the, the prosperity of the wicked who cheated him and defrauded him, it vexed him. And then he thought and said, you know, no man can ransom the soul of his brother, of another. And yet, what does he say about himself? But God will ransom my soul. God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Verse 7, no man can ransom the soul of another and the ransom price, the cost of redemption of sinners is costly, but God has made the ransom for sinners. And what is that ransom? What is that redemption price for sinners but the death of, of the Lord Jesus Christ, the death of God's Son on the cross? As we saw last week, last week in Mark 10:45, Jesus himself says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a what? As a ransom for many. Jesus Christ is the only redeemer of God's elect. He is the only one who is able to pay the infinite price for the ransom or redemption of his people. No one else can pay that price. It's only because he has ransomed our souls from the power of death and hell that you and I can approach even death itself with confidence and joy knowing that God himself, as verse 15 says, God himself will receive you. That's justification language. What is, what is justification? I won't give you the, the, the word-for-word definition, but justification involves two things. That God forgives all of your sins. He forgives all of your sins, and then he does what? He accepts our persons. He accepts you as righteous in his sight. Because of that, forgiving your sin and accepting you as righteous. Sinful people like you and me can be accepted by a holy God as righteous because of the righteousness of Christ put to our account by faith. To the, to the, to the wicked, what does he say is the shepherd of the wicked? It's a terrifying statement. Death is the shepherd, verse 14, of the wicked. But it reminds us, if you're a believer, of a different psalm, doesn't it? When you hear shepherd, what do you think of? Psalm, psalm 23, those who know the Lord Jesus Christ by faith do not have death as their shepherd, but have the Lord himself as our shepherd. Verse 1, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And what happens because of that? I shall not want. I, I shall lack no good thing. Those who can call the Lord Jesus Christ their shepherd will lack no good thing in this life. And the good things that we have in this life far outweigh all the riches that the rich and ungodly could possibly have or imagine. So this morning I ask, is the Lord Jesus Christ your shepherd? 
Not, not asking do you go to church, obviously you're here. Not asking if you're religious or if you read your Bible five times or six times a week. Is the Lord Jesus Christ your shepherd? What are you trusting in? Do you hear his voice and follow him? That's one of the ways to know if, you, if he's your shepherd, if you're actually following him, if you're trusting in him and following in him. Are you in Christ by faith? Are you able to say that Jesus, as the psalmist says, that he has ransomed your soul from death and that the Lord himself will receive you? It's by way of application, by using what the psalm says here, if you're in Christ, you need not fear in times of trouble, verse 5. That's, remember, that's, the, that's what got this thing going in the first place. The psalmist was saying, why should I fear in time of, of trouble? And then in verse Verse 16, he says, Be not afraid when man becomes rich. He comes back to the same, he's still on the same subject. We need fear no man if we know the Lord and fear him. As Paul says in Romans 8.31, If God is for us, what? Who can be against us? Nobody. They can try, they can be against us, but what will it matter? It won't matter at all. Because God is for us in Christ. And if you're in Christ, you need not fear death, the grave, or even hell itself. Why? For God has paid in full the ransom for your sins through the death of his son. Paid in full. The lowliest, poorest saint on this earth is more to be envied than the richest person that ever lived. The richest person that ever lived, if he doesn't know the Lord, should be truly envious of the most humblest saint that knows Christ. For the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, paid a king's ransom for him to redeem us from sin and death. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Psalms. We thank you for the, the gospel that is all through them, that's woven throughout. We thank you for these reminders that we have to think about from time to time in your word. As we go through it, makes us think about things that we sometimes don't like to think about. We don't, no one likes to think about death. But you have removed, you have defanged death. You have removed its sting for those who are in Christ. And we thank you so much for that. We thank you that the last enemy to be, to be gotten rid of, to be conquered is death. And Christ has already won that victory. And one day we will see it openly manifested that death will be no more. There will be no more mourning or crying or pain or any of those things. For you will wipe away every tear from our eyes. We thank you that we have an inheritance laid up for us in heaven that no moth can can damage, no rust can, can destroy, no thief can break in and steal. That, uh, that, that is the envy because we have, we have you for our lot. We have you, the one true and living God, as our everlasting possession. And we give you praise for that. Give us grace to have the eyes to see that even now, the faith to see that. And to, to envy, let us, if we are in Christ, let us envy no man while we walk on this earth. Let us be thankful and rejoice. Help us to rejoice and be thankful that we know you by your grace and that you have sent your son to be the ransom price for our sins, for our redemption, that we might be free from death and hell forever and know that we have heaven with you to look forward to. And we do pray that if anybody here this morning is, is someone that is still yet trusting in things other than Christ and their boasting and their praising and their glorying is in something else, we ask that you would open their eyes to believe in Christ, that they might have life in him, life eternal and abundant, that they may learn to trust you, the Lord, and praise you above all things, and that you may give them that same inheritance that awaits all the saints by your grace. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.